Thanks so much to all who have uh, assisted with the program this morning, uh, the scripture. I grew up with Woodstock-like, very loud rock concerts, and yet I still get a warm fuzzy when the organ kicks it out. So if we can, if we can really get Alvin to kick out that last song today, then uh, I'll, I'll be selling hearing aids in the, in the lobby afterwards, and uh, Dr. Whit with bobbleheads for anyone who enjoys that music. Um, but we're very appreciative for the expertise that Dr. Whitworth brings to uh, the task. And uh, many of you may not know his concert performance history, but we're really fortunate to have him as our uh, seminary organist. Well, we want to swim deeply in the very rich theological waters of a very familiar passage, the prodigal son. This passage has shaped history. It's shaped music, art, what is in art museums, what's in literature, it's shaped the Reformation, which of course changed history. It has had a big impact, impact in Hollywood, in American evangelicalism, and uh, would it had more influence in segments of our society such as Hollywood or DC? Wouldn't it be great if all of the people on the left and the right in Hollywood and in DC would repeat the words of the prodigal son, I'm not worthy to be called a son, uh, set me aside as a slave or as a servant. It might be a good culture shift for uh, our society. Well, let's jump in a little bit here. The biblical context, which I'm going to refer to as the biblical Abba context of this familiar passage, is pretty fascinating. Now, most of you know that the section headings in Scripture were not there in the original, unless the King James Version, version was the original. And what I noticed, and I tend to look at Scripture a little bit differently. I was trained on inductive Bible study and the train of method. And Dr. Bauer graded my papers as a freshman. Uh, there were two graders. He's the one that gave us a substantive uh, content. Uh, he was already quite a scholar as a senior in college. And when I go to Scripture, I utilize that. But as a systematic theologian, I also really try to see how the author of the book as well as the speaker in the text, such as our Lord and Savior, look at this theologically and frame this theologically. And what strikes me is that when you come to Luke chapter 15, there's definitely a, a unity there. And after I did my inductive Bible study, I went back and found out that N.T. Wright agreed with me. That was a good thing, in general, in general. But we started with the inductive Bible study. And what I noticed is that when you come to Luke chapter 15, you have three key stories there. Uh, the first one, of course, is the lost sheep. The second one is the lost coin. And the third one is the lost son, as some would put it. And you have a parallel structure with the stories because you have the loss and then you have the extreme effort to redeem the lost and then you have an eschatological celebration. Now, Jesus, I believe, was a very, very profound thinker and theologian. Maybe that should go without saying. Stephen Hawking just passed away, the Lucian professor of mathematics at Cambridge, and most of you know he spent his whole life searching for the grand unified theory uh, in physics. And yet, if Jesus was truly Alpha and Omega, then he certainly had a profound grasp. He was instructing the rabbis or asking questions of the rabbis at 12 years of age. And so I'm convinced when I read Jesus, there's much more depth, theological depth, depth and integration than many people uh, give credit for. And so I am firmly convinced that there is a redemptive message in these three stories, but there's also an eschatological celebration. 
and perhaps even more importantly, it's framed within a kingdom covenant context. It's not just an isolated story of someone who gets a ticket to heaven. N.T. Wright has made a great deal out of, in salvation theology in evangelicalism, we often reduce it down to a ticket to heaven and how we can get to heaven. John Wesley complained about people that merely wanted to get to heaven and they didn't focus on the entire corpus of scripture and the great salvation. So what I see in this text is a unified theological story that is rather profound and, and rather deep. So I would rather rename our story. Let me illustrate. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount, that's a great way of summarizing it because Jesus sat down on the mount to preach. But what's the sermon really about? It's really a sermon on the kingdom. It's really the introductory sermon on eschatology and kingdom in the Matthewan literature. And so if you go earlier in Matthew, what do you find? John the Baptist says what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 5, you have the fuller expression of the sermon on the kingdom. So when we come to, and this is by way of analogy, but it is related, when we come to the prodigal son story, what strikes me, and there have been a few commentators who have gone here, this is not so much a story about the prodigal son. This is more a story about the prodigal son's father and how that father is a window, a human father is a window into understanding who God is and God's nature. That's a profound concept when we approach this particular passage. Let me give you some more evidence that this is unified and that that's the real focus. At the beginning of the story, you have the grumbling Pharisees. Jesus hangs out and eats with sinners, right? At the end of the prodigal son story, what do you have? The grumbling brother who says, didn't I follow all of your commandments and convictions? Have I violated anything? And yet you treat me like this? And so I think the framework is the Pharisees have a vision of God, and then Jesus has a vision of God, and they're in conflict, and the prodigal son's story gives us an insight into who God really is. Let me illustrate from N.T. Wright, if you'll allow me to put on my $7 Rite Aid glasses. N.T. Wright, who's always right, uh, says, the prodigal son's father's vision reveals, quote, that resurrection, forgiveness, restoration, return from exile. That's real important to N.T. Wright, that you don't just take these stories out and make them isolated little stories about how to get to heaven. Much deeper, much more profound than that. The return from exile, the reign of Yahweh, were all happening under the noses of the elder brothers, the self-appointed stay-at-home guardians of the father's house. The covenant was being renewed and Jesus was welcomed to the outcasts, which was a vital part of that renewal. So my humble suggestion is that this is the prodigal son's father story teaching us the mega concept of God's salvation and most importantly, a vision of who God is. And the God of the Pharisees, which was the God that Martin Luther served for a long time, is not the God of Jesus and the prodigal son story. So it's a sermon on the father. I grew up encountering different interpretations of this story. I grew up in the dazed and confused 70s and 80s. Anybody with me there? Okay. 
All right, by the way, how many of you can relate greatly to the prodigal son? That story relates to your life. Okay. Wrong answer. Everybody should have raised their hand. Okay, <laughs> in a Wesleyan context, uh, that would be the right answer. Well, that story was a big deal when I was growing up in the days in confused 70s and 80s. I remember as a skeptic because I rejected the Christian faith. I thought it was intellectually indefensible. I thought it was based on mythology. And yet I got dragged to a church service one time where a lot of people were giving testimonies. And the prodigal story that I heard was that there were hippies up there that had come to Christ. They were in the Jesus movement. And they had really nice hair. And I was sitting there listening to them, and it was very interesting because the prodigal story was all about how they weren't saved and they were strung out on drugs and rocks, rock and roll and sex and everything, and that they had now been saved and they had found salvation. They got so into telling the story of their drug use and abuse and the nickel of marijuana that they had and the good hash that they got and they tried this drug and that drug, and you could just tell they were really getting the story. I almost got high sitting there listening to the story. Well, there was some truth in what they were saying, but the broader context of this, this, this mega concept of who God is, I think, is most important. But most of the stories I heard in evangelicalism were about this concept of the ticket to heaven. Then another version of this that I heard was to take the term Abba, which you have three references to the Aramaic, you know, one in the Markan literature and two others in the Pauline pneumatological passages dealing with adoption and some sonship and appointment. And they would take this concept of Abba and they would apply it to the prodigal son. And the concept of Abba that was being used was based on Jeremiah, and it was the idea that Abba, the Aramaic term, was only used by little children addressing their fathers, and that that was who we should understand God to be, that it was like daddy in English. Well, there were waves of scholarship that came through and reflected on what Jeremiah said. And the conclusion that I understand, and I talked to an expert on this on our campus, I don't want to name their name because I'll probably distort what they say, but I talked to an expert on the campus, and the waves of scholarship that came through said, that's not really true. There was wave one, then there was wave two, then there was James Barr, kind of wave three. And what they discovered was that adults would refer to their fathers as Abba. So Abba means, guess what? All the translators got it right. Father. <laughs> That's the proper definition. Now, to go a little bit further here, Leland Riken, he got his PhD at Oxford University. He's the president of Wheaton College, the evangelical Harvard. And he summarizes how this develops. This is important because I want to make the argument that the prodigal son's father is Abba and Alpha and Omega. Leland Riken says, to call God Abba Father is to speak to him with reverence as well as confidence. Abba does not mean daddy. To prove this point, the Oxford linguist James Barr wrote an article for the Journal of Theological Studies called Abba Isn't Daddy. Wow. <laughs> you just don't get academic titles like that very often, do you? Uh, what Barr discovered was that Abba was not merely a word used by young children. It was used by young children. Don't misunderstand that. It was also the word that Jewish children used for their parents after they were fully grown. Abba was a mature yet affectionate way for adults to speak to their fathers. And this is where I think he gets into some theology. 
the New Testament is careful not to be too casual in the way it addresses God. The Aramaic word Abba appears three times in the New Testament. We referenced that already. In each case, it is followed immediately by the Greek word pater. Pater is not the Greek word for daddy. There was another option. <laughs> the authors did not use that. The translators give us father. They had other options. They did not use that. But that is not the word in the New Testament used to translate Abba. Instead, in order to make sure that our intimacy with God does not become an excuse for immaturity, it says Abba and then Father. The best way, he says, to translate Abba is dear father or even dearest father. That phrase captures both the warm confidence and the deep reverence that we have for our Father in heaven. It expresses our intimacy with God while preserving his dignity. When we pray, therefore, we are to say, our dear Father in heaven. I want to ramp that up just a tad more if I'm catching the theology of the New Testament and the theology of this passage. Because we're going even beyond dear Father in heaven, especially when we Platonize heaven, <laughs> we're going beyond that. And I think what we're really doing is saying that the prodigal's father is Abba, there's the dear father or dearest father, and king of kings, lord of lords, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. It's both intimacy, familiarity, and profound reverence for who God is. And in the history of the church, sometimes we go too far one way and we're terrorized by God. Think of Martin Luther and the terror of the holy. And then other times we go too far and we're too casual with God. Which era do we live in in America? Probably depends on the subculture. Okay. I think this is a big deal. <clears throat> I'm in my little happy place. So let me have it. I think this is a big deal. This father-mother vision, the human parent pointing to who God is, is mammoth, I believe. Culturally, theologically, psychologically, historically, philosophically, it's huge for our culture. My wife and I were coming back from Memphis recently, and we stopped at Mammoth Cave. Anybody been to Mammoth Cave? We didn't have a lot of time, but we were looking around a little bit, then we're driving back up the road on the interstate, and we're looking at the material. We did not realize that the Mammoth Cave stretched for 400 miles. <laughs> Largest cave system in the world, unless they're just blowing smoke to get people to pay them money. But the point is, we were 100 miles up the road, and we could have potentially been on the Mammoth Cave. And so what I mean by Mammoth, this is an undergirding concept that is profound for our culture, our church, our ecclesiology, our pneumatology, our sense of mission and service. Think about the Hollywood movies. Anybody see Wrinkle? Okay, I'm the only new ager in the room. What, what am I gonna do about that? The, the movie Wrinkle in Time that just came out, it has the 30-foot Oprah. Uh, Oprah and two others are the spirit guides. Oprah is the 30-foot one to designate her as the primary spirit guide. The two other spirit guides are there. And a big part of what they are doing in, in, in addition to challenging the it, which is the, the dark new age evil energy force and trying to bring the light, is they're working with two young, two young children with two daddy stories or two father stories. And they're trying to work through those father stories. Hollywood gets it. Lion King, anybody old enough to remember Lion King? Simba, yeah. I <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Glory be to God. <laughs> I thought about doing that. It wouldn't have, sounded, uh, wouldn't have sounded that good. Nemo, anybody old enough for Nemo? 
Got the daddy story going? The Godfather? Not good for fathers or horses, but... Um, Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. Star Wars. Absolutely. Maybe more sadly, Marilyn Monroe. Her father walked out. The mother lied to her that he had died in a car accident to protect her. She found the picture. She began to dreaming about it over and over and over again. Near the end of her life, near the end of her tragic life, whatever the cause is, lots of conspiracies, but it was not going well. Uh, the candle in the wind stated when someone asked her, why have you had all of these dysfunctional relationships, one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another? Her response was, I don't know. Um, I guess I just wanted somebody that would love me. I guess I would just like to feel like somebody truly loves me. I've been searching for it my whole life. Luther, <laughs> there's a whole book on his psychology based upon his father. School shooters, the police and the criminal justice system clamps down on information, but it seems at least one variable in this is typically a dysfunctional, a significantly dysfunctional relationship with one of the parents or both. One of the key variables there. Norm Wakefield, one of the key youth leaders in our society today, listen to what he says about the significance of all this. Since my dad never seemed to be satisfied with me, I felt God must feel the same way. It was as if he were saying, Norm, why don't you straighten up? Why do I have to put up with you? You can imagine the impact this had on this young teen's self-image, let alone his misperception of the love of God. It's very common for children to think God values them in the same way their own fathers regard them. If dad is loving, warm, and nurturing, they tend to picture God as a loving, warm, and nurturing being. But if dad is perceived as cold, distant, and occupied with more important things, they are likely to feel that God is unapproachable and uninterested in them as individuals. And later in his life, Norm said, he just finally discovered, after much pain, a theology of fatherhood with God himself as the role model. I told you I was a skeptic. I did finally become a Christian, so you have a Christian provost. provost. Um, but because I was a skeptic, I kind of became a skeptic magnet. And after working literally, my wife and I worked literally with thousands of students over more than two decades. And I loved hanging out with the skeptics. I mean, we'd be in the student center until two in the morning. We'd be at Tim Hortons, whatever, and I love that. But this is literally what began to happen inside of me psychologically. When someone would come into my office and say, I don't believe in God. You know what I began to hear? I don't believe in my daddy. Because in almost every situation, when I began to talk to them, that's what came from below the surface like Mammoth Cave and erupted into the common space. I remember a student that had thrown his computer against the wall. He was struggling with his wife. He put his fist through the drywall. And I'm not a counselor, and I'm not Oprah, and I'm not 30 foot. But I began talking, and I just asked a kind of a simple question. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Well, his, his dad had walked out on the family when he was five or six years age. I said, well, how does that make you feel? No, I didn't say that. Um, what, I, what I said to him is, well, t tell me about that. Eh, no big deal. I don't, even, I don't even remember it. Well, within 10 or 15 minutes of just exploring that a, lo a, lo a little bit, this student in my office was a fountain of tears and could not stop crying and then said they had not cried in their recollection in their entire life. 
the father concept is, is rather significant. In evangelicalism, this became, became rather significant. And I'm going to have them play a video if they have it. If they don't, I'll tell you about it in just a minute. But there was an Olympic star from England by the name of Derek Redmond. And Derek Redmond's video went viral in the evangelical community. Because Derek Redmond was quite the star, but Derek Redmond was in the middle of the race of his life, semifinal at the Olympiad, with the great cloud of witnesses watching uh, this particular event. And Derek Redmond had an injury. So he's out there running. He has been setting records in, in, the, in the 440, and, or the 400, and he pulls up with a hamstring. He goes down on one knee like this. His dreams have come crashing down. Has anybody seen the video? His dreams have come crashing down. Then he decides that he's going to get up and finish the race. He's having a hard time doing it. Well, out of the stands, fighting through the people controlling the event, is who? His father. His father fights through the crowd. They keep trying to push him off of the track. He finally gets over and puts the son's arm on his shoulder. The, the, the athlete is in utter tears and begins to help him to get uh, to the finish line. More of the helpful attendants come and try to get the father off the track. It's against the rules. <laughs> and if you've seen the actual audio, there's, at one, there's one point after he's done this, <laughs> you know, saying, hey, I'm going to get this guy to the finish line. And he told his son, you don't have to do this. But... He said, if we're going to do it, we'll do it together. But at one point, as the attendants are trying to get him off of the track, you can see him saying to the attendant something like, this is my son. Is that cool or what? Again, fatherhood as a lesson for who God is. I could go on and on. We all have these stories. Some of them are more positive, teaching us who God is in a positive fashion. Some of us, negative illustrations. My wife worked with a young lady at Baylor University. I saw a Baylor hat out there earlier. That was wonderful, another religious experience for me. And this young lady, it's a true story. This young lady had a father who was a Baptist deacon who would molest her night after night after night and then afterwards would pray with her. So you can understand why this father concept is something that we have to wrestle with. And you'll see in just a minute, it's not so much gender-based in terms of what we're trying to say about what mothers and fathers can do. There's some pretty good wrinkles to it. She finally, when she was about 25, she approached her father and said, I've never told anybody, we have to deal with this. We have to talk to mom, we have to talk to the family, and we have to address this. The father said, well... I think one of us has to die then. And within 48 hours, he had driven his car into a tree. So this is huge, these experiences. They're, they're the lenses through which we view who God is. But in the prodigal son story and the prodigal's father story, God is trying to take us to a different understanding of who God is. Builds on the good, transcends the bad, and shows us who God really is. Let's look at the text and see how this father vision comes through. If you have your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 15. If you are, have memorized your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 15. But what you find is that the prodigal's 
prodigal son's father in verse 13 accepts those who have squandered their inheritance. Jesus is a theologian. This is loaded. This is loaded with theology. Those who have squandered their inheritance have been accepted by God. Most biblical commentators said this is really unusual, <laughs> that a father would take the inheritance and split it. Now, some Bible commentaries drawing upon the Old Testament suggest that the older son would have gotten twice as much as the younger son. I'll leave that to the biblical experts. Uh, my father passed away not too long ago. I'm glad my brother did not read that verse in the Old Testament about the older son getting twice as much as the younger son. But this father God is one who accepts those who have squandered everything, squandered the inheritance, embarrassed the family. Some biblical commentators say that when someone would do that, blow an inheritance and then come home, the community would shun them with the ceremony. And yet this God accepts those who have squandered everything. This God looks down on someone who is a Jew feeding swine, isn't that interesting, and lures them back to the divine love. It's bad enough to have any association with pigs, much less feeding them, much less being desirous of what they eat. Yeah, I'd like some pig food. Verse 17. This father, from a Wesleyan perspective, this God from a Wesleyan perspective, is pouring out prevenient grace on this, this prodigal with the pigs, and by God's grace, what happens? Came to his senses. <laughs> this is not working real well. This points out the utter stupidity of sin. Think of the things that we do that we think are rational that are utterly stupid because of our fallen nature. It's amazing. I think most people, whether they like Bill Clinton or not, think that he was a very smart individual. Incredible memory, almost a photographic memory, Bill Clinton. And yet here's one of these most intelligent politicians leaving voice messages on Monica Lewinsky's machine. Good idea. Sin is stupid. Sin is nice. Sin is stupid. Verse 18. The prodigal is accepted by God because he returns and says, I'm not worthy. Repentance. Place me as a slave. Trust. The prodigal returned and put the trust in the Father. What prodigals return? It's really interesting. A study released by Oxford University Press essentially studied prodigals. 3,000 respondents, 300 families, over 30 years of research. And guess what they found out? Who persisted? Who persisted in their faith? Who returned as a prodigal to their faith once they wandered off? Very fascinating. In most cases, it was ones who had a sense of a very close interpersonal connection with the father or the mother, depending upon the subgroup in the study. This is really fascinating information. First of all, the researchers thought that most people were leaving the faith. They're not. Six out of ten stay with their faith. Second of all, they thought the mother would be the most influential. And other than a couple of demographics, it was actually the father that was the most influential. That relationship with the father that was very, very defining. Among evangelicals and Protestants and Catholics... If there was a close relationship with the father, there was a 20% greater chance that they would stay in the faith or return to the faith, as opposed to if they had a close relationship with the mother, it was 1%. But that's not the uh, end of the story. It means that in the evangelical community, we got an issue. The Barna Research Group found out 
that most fathers spend a maximum of 4.5 minutes a day in meaningful communication with their kids. Mothers spend 8.5 minutes per day. I have this brainless uh, worm with a hairy tail called a cat at home that demands a blessing every day in at least five minutes. And we give our kids uh, less than that. Now, we are not glorifying fathers over mothers. If, if you're hearing that, you're not hearing very well. It's quite the opposite. Guys are not stepping up to the plate <laughs> in the evangelical community. This was really fascinating. I don't, I'm not even sure I believe it, but it's great. Among Jews, if the, if the child was close to the mother, there was a 30% greater chance that they would stay in the faith or return to the faith. If that was true of the father, only a 6% chance. Whoa! With Mormons, it was about even. About a 20% likelihood they would stay or return, whether it was a close relationship with the mother or with the father. But what they found in all of these, you can teach your kids all the doctrine. It's very, very important to do that. It is part of framing them, keeping them in the faith. But if you don't have the emotional attachment, it all unravels. And they're then likely to become a rebel and never come back, or they're going to become a zealot and join some strange other group, meaning they become a wackadoodle in some cult or some other religion. Isn't that fascinating? Well, then we come to verse 20. The God, the prodigal son's father, is a father of compassion. And, and when the son uh, begins to return, the father does what? Runs to the son. That's our God. Isn't that great? Down in Georgia, they talked about the hound of heaven that would uh, uh, run after us in order to bring us into salvation. The father would run to the individual who had drifted away. One commentator thinks that because they were trying to get there before the town would shun the individual. I don't know. I can answer that. We had a very uh, interesting recent illustration of this story. Uh, Billy Graham passed away recently, as many of you know, and they had the funeral service and the eulogy out at the Cove out in North Carolina, and his daughter, who's called Bunny with Ruth Bell Graham, gave a testimony that may illustrate this. Fascinating story. Uh, she went to college, married, had children. In the 90s, her world fell apart. Her husband was unfaithful. There had been concerns expressed by the parents about the first husband. After 18 years of marriage, Ruth was devastated. Then, just a few months after the divorce, she remarried on the rebound against the advice of her parents, but knew within 24 hours that she'd made a terrible mistake because of the extreme behavior of the person she married. Her life was a shambles. She loaded up everything and sought refuge with her parents. They lived on a mountain, and as she rounded the last bend, she wondered, would they say, we told you so, we told you not to do that. She says her own words, no one wants to embarrass their father, but you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> with a broken voice, she shared how when she came around the last bend, there was her father waiting for her. As she got out of the car, her father wrapped his arms around her and said, welcome home. No shame, no blame, no condemnation. This is a great line. This was just presented at this eulogy just a few weeks ago. She said, my father was not God, she said, but he showed me what God was like that day. He showed me who God was. And then she went on to give the invitation. God says, welcome home to all, no matter what the sin, what the pain, what the hurt, or what the failure. So this eschatological celebration wraps up. We're about to finish with the passage. With the embrace of the Father, that's who God is. 
With the kiss of the father, multiple commentators said the phraseology is similar to when Joseph was reconciled to the brothers who were trying to snuff him out. Similar phraseology. The best robe is presented. The ring, which is similar to the ring that was presented to Joseph by Pharaoh, according to some biblical commentaries. The sandals, what's the significance? He said, I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave. They didn't wear sandals. The sandals mean, guess what? You're a son. The sacrifice, the celebration, this all reveals who God is. The prodigal son got it. The grumbling Pharisee or the grumbling brother did not understand that. This is who God is. This is who the prodigal son really is. This is who we are. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the son is dead and now alive. Some parting themes that jump out at me from the text from a profound theologian by the name of Jesus. Men and women, the prodigal son's father's story is Trinitarian. Oh, my word. It's leaping off of the pages. Trinitarian, salvation, seeking the lost through the son, by the spirit, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, the God who saves. This God is one who runs toward the child, runs toward the prodigal, runs toward us, and on one level, we're all prodigals. This is the incarnational God. This is the God who John 1, in our canon log, this, this Logos, John 1, 14, then steps into human flesh and pitches the tent among us. And so when you go back to the Derek Redmond video, this is a pretty cool story because it's incarnational. I think that's why it took off in evangelicalism. Hebrews 12, the Olympiad, the great crowd of witnesses. Guess what? The great crowd of witnesses are surrounding us. Jesus has paved the way. God is reaching out to us. And as we begin to stumble and fall, the Father comes out of the stands to walk with us and carry us to the finish line, which, by the way, led to a standing ovation at that Olympiad. This is a God of grace. This is a story that gives a mirror to who we really are. This is a God who says we're sons and not slaves or servants. We deserve sandals. We deserve the best robe, lots of theology. This is a vision of true parenthood. This is a relational God. It's not an impersonal universe without a God atheism. It's not a God who creates the universe and then walks away deism. It's not a force, new age, and uh, being absorbed into cosmic oneness. Woohoo! It's a vision of theology 101, men and women. The first theology lessons come through parenting, through parenting. The classroom matters, knowledge matters, but parents are professors of theology 101. If we don't give them theological hugs, there are lots of people out there that will be glad to give them the wrong kind of hugs for the wrong reasons. Parenting is the first theology class. Convictions aren't likely to stick unless there is the connection. Josh McDalloway says, rules without relationships leads to rebellion. I would just add to that based on working with thousands of college, college students. Relationships without rules leads to moral relativism. And that's why we have to have Abba, Daddy, and Alpha, and Omega. This is a vision of the blessing that we all seek in one way or another. In the Bible, it's a big deal. You get property. In the Bible, it's a big deal. There's the jealousy and the emotions. It's a big deal. It's the biggest deal when you're in the line of promise and you want to be part of the Abrahamic blessing to the entire world. This is an eschatological vision. God welcoming us, welcoming us to the great celebration. 
This is a template for loving our parents warts and all. Don't put the burden on a human parent to give you that perfect blessing. We can spend our whole life chasing the human blessing from the mother or the father. We're never going to get the perfect words because we don't have perfect parents. So you accept your parents, you love your parents, words and all, and you use those experiences to take you to the true God who then incarnationally teaches us that we are blessed and we are called often through other role models. My parents gave me a lot of love. My dad was really quiet. He talked once a month. His father talked once a year. But my wife, Carol, has brought me a sense of the divine blessing, of the love. God wants us to sense not in the same Christological sense of the Father saying, you are my son and who I'm well pleased. But there is an analogy there. God wants us to know, you are my child in whom I am well pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not this vision of the prodigal father, the ultimate vision for this holy season. Isn't that what it's all about? Doesn't this tell us what's at the core of the holy season? Well, I think so. Thanks be to God.